Do you want to make $20 for five minutes of your time? David Mandel is an upcoming three-time guest on this podcast, and his firm has designed a survey to learn what young doctors care about when it comes to finances. The first 30 of you who complete the survey get a $20 Amazon gift card. 20 bucks for five minutes, not bad. To get a link to the survey, just text GET20 to 844-418-1212. That's G-E-T-20 to 844-418-1212. I will also put a link in the show notes. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Nailed the Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics. And you are now tuned in to yet another episode. Today, we're going to talk about some hand. And in particular, we're going to talk about perilunate injuries. And who we have to speak with us today is Dr. John Dunn, who is actually double board certified in hand, wrist, and nerve. A little bit more about Dr. Dunn. He completed his orthopedic surgery residency at the William Beaumont Army Medical Center, where he was actually named the chief resident and researcher of the year. He completed his fellowship in hand and microvascular surgery at the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. He actually does a lot of research. He has written over 160 scientific articles. He is involved in multiple of the societies and the professional societies. And again, today he, he comes and he does a great job breaking down perilunate injuries. We talk about the anatomy, we talk about the pathophysiology, how to examine these patients, how to treat them, what approaches to do, all these different things. And we actually cover all the high-yield stuff for the test and all the stuff for real-life clinical practice. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Dunn, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. So happy to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, it's going to be fun. Fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to. We don't, you know, we haven't had a, a lot of hand topics. We've met, we've had maybe a couple of episodes, but I, I'm looking forward to this topic in particular because you know I think we're talking a little bit before off air. You know, I've, I've seen a couple of these, and I've seen some of these be missed before. So hopefully, we can stop people from missing these and you know get some education out there. All right, sounds good. So we typically just start off couple questions is getting to know you a little bit better and so what kind of brought you into the field of, of hand or upper extremity what kind of what, what kind of brought you that way well i i was always interested in orthopedics because i played college sports i played lacrosse at colgates and i think i was always interested in athletic injuries just from playing sports growing up and during medical school i i think i gravitated towards orthopedics for that reason but once i got into residency I saw primarily hand injuries in the ER and, and hand injuries do make up the predominance of orthopedic injuries through the emergency department. And I trained in El Paso and we were the only level one trauma center for hundreds of miles, really between Tucson and Dallas. And so a, a lot of these injuries, we, you know, we smaller injuries couldn't take to the OR. So we treated a lot of these injuries in the emergency department. And uh, I thought I had the most latitude with my hand faculty and particularly uh, Dr. Cruz. And uh, he's recently moved back to El Paso, but he, he was my chairman at Texas Tech for a long time. And so I fostered more of an interest in hand surgery than I did uh, sports and shoulder and elbow, which is what I uh, had initially thought I was going to go into. So I think just those long nights in the emergency departments at Texas Tech, I think that's that's what brought me to hand surgery. Yeah, I always had a good time at least managing the hand fractures. The hand pus, not as much, but the hand fractures and the other consoles, I always thought those were, were pretty interesting and in how you know people could get better. Unfortunately, there's no escape from hand infection. There's good and bad with every subspecialty, but in hand surgery, it's definitely infections and stiffness is an unfortunate part of the practice. Yeah. 
I know it's it's rough or it can be rough. And another one of the things that, you know, you're you're in the military, you're in the army, what kind of what brought you towards that? And I guess how is that experience being a, a surgeon also kind of in the military? We have a lot of residents that listen to this. We also have medical students that are going into orthopedics that will, you know, that may are considering joining the military at some point as well. Well, I uh, September 11th happened when I was a sophomore in high school. I, I remember it like it was yesterday. And I think that during high school, I, I had an interest in attending West Point. And I, I actually applied and was accepted to the West Point, but mostly for athletic reasons, went to a different school, although we ended up playing West Point twice a year. But I, I've always had an interest, I think, in, in the military. And actually in college, we would play West Point at West Point, And I, I thought it was really cool. And the scholarship for medical school was good. My my loan, the the rate on my loans was going to be high, and so I thought uh, I would join I would join the military, and I think that's afforded me good good training. I, the fellowship, the military has two orthopedic fellowships. One's at West Point, and one is at Walter Reed. The Walter Reed Fellowship, is, that's a hand surgery fellowship, is partnered with uh, the Curtis National Hand Center in Baltimore, which is renowned. And actually, the military fellowship was started by Raymond Curtis, who's one of the fathers of of hand surgery. And so it's a very historic fellowship and it's something I'm very proud of. And I, I think I received excellent training. So I think there are still excellent training opportunities for medical students and residents through the military, most frequently partnering with civilian institutions at nearby installations. But I, I think in general, I've had good training and certain experiences I've, I've had, I probably wouldn't have had otherwise. So I am grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Man. That's great. I'm glad you enjoyed it and, and are able to share and talk about that experience. And so now we can, we'll transition a little bit and talk a little bit more about perilunate injuries. And let's just, I guess, take it all the way to ground, ground zero. I guess, what is like a, a perilunate dislocation and, and how does this occur? You know, when, do you, when does this happen? Well, I think a couple main mechanisms of injury are skateboards. I don't know why that is. In, in where we are here in El Paso, it falls off the border walls is common. And then uh, roofers get these when they, when and they fall off the roof or fall off the ladder or something like that. So those are probably the three most common patient cohorts where I see this injury. And instead of failing to the distal radius, which is probably more common, a, a distal radius fracture, there's a ligamentous, which would be a, a lesser arc or a greater arc injury, which would, is a perilunate with wrist fractures associated, uh, you know, radial styloid or or sometimes the, the energy is expressed with the scaphoid. You can have a trans-scaphoid perilunate fracture dislocation, but probably the for the sake of this talk, the, the most common thing residents may see would be a, a failure through the scapholunate ligaments and a complete failure. So that would include the three portions of the scapholunate ligament, the dorsal being the, the stoutest. Kind of what happens is the scaphoid extends to the point where the scapholunate ligament ruptures. And as the scaphoid extends, the space of Poirier is open and the lunate, the lunate position within the within the carpus is, is kind of maintained by the short radial lunate ligament. And then the rest of the carpus typically d dislocates dorsally. So the capitate will end up sitting on the distal radius where the lunate should be. And the lunate is palmar. And that's why a lot of these are associated with carpal tunnel syndrome. In the literature, it's reported between 7 and 25% of the time. I think 25% of the time is typically what I would see. And actually, we did a military study probably about six or seven years ago now. And, and that's what we found is that 25% of patients have acute carpal tunnel. But the interesting thing was, is if you reduce them, that it pretty much goes away. Sometimes not not right away, but if you can get this thing reduced, I, I certainly would be less concerned about acute carpal tunnel syndrome. But again, that acute carpal tunnel is coming primarily from that lunate sitting palm relief. Yeah. And you actually just touched on a bunch of test questions <laughs> that you just, just said. And I know this because I was doing a lot for my boards, <laughs> but you 
Well, one of the things is just to reiterate that you mentioned, you're talking about the dwarf soul, scapulonate ligaments being the strongest, how the scapefoid extends. And after, you know, the it goes through this arc of, of injury, how the short radiolunate ligaments that are the last ones to fail. And this is kind of that, that Mayfield classification, right? That's kind of what we're, what we're referring to a little bit as far as the mechanism of the injury or, or how it occurs. Yeah, yeah I, I think for resident, you know, the Mayfield article, I think was in 1980s, so a while ago. And I think like with many orthopedic classifications, it's not incredibly helpful. and It's definitely not prognostic or diagnostic or anything. I think it's suggestive of, of the kind of uh, direction of some of the energy. But for the most part, the, you know, I don't think, I, I can't imagine they would test you on the Mayfield classification, but it, it is good to know that as the lunate extends and the space of Fourier opens, the short radial lunate maintains the position of the lunate. And I think, you know, if you ever have a a test question and there's an arthroscopic image of a wrist, the, the answer is probably short radio lunate. It's the stout ulnarmost ligament on the on the lunate. And, and this this ligament really does not fail. So that'll maintain the lunate in, in its position in the carpus. And can you quickly touch base on what that space of Poirier is? So the space of Poirier is a potential space. It's right under the uh, ulnocapitate ligament. And as the lunate extends, the, this, this has become this potential space widens in it just it's kind of potential space where the lunate can kind of slip out palmarly and that, that could potentially i suppose be tested as well but i think most of the questions will revolve around the short radio lunate. yeah and and so can you you, you mentioned this a little bit earlier but I, I guess these kind of these different stages of, of perilunate instability can you kind of just take us through what those are and kind of what these different you know i guess the position of the lunate can change a little bit as well can you kind of just take us through these sure so the so the, the first thing that will occur is the the, the scaphoid extends and the, the SL ligament sequentially ruptures palmar to dorsal. Once the dorsal ligament is ruptured, that the, the wrist really becomes unstable. And so that, that would be the initial, the initial path. Subsequently, well, and, and then again, the, radio, the, the short radial lunate maintains its position. Subsequently, the, the upper limb of the arcuate ligament may pull the triquetrium dorsally, and that can that can cause an LT disassociation. I think that's pretty rare. And I think certainly less clinically impactful compared to a scaphoid ligament injury. And then finally, the capitate can be forced into the, excuse me, forced by the radioscaphal capitate ligament, which I can touch on here in a sec. And this, this slips the capitate into the kind of the proximal row. Now that the RSC is important, you usually are often tested on that because if that ligament is cut in a proximal carpectomy, you'll have all no carpal translocation. So the, the, the whole carpus kind of shifts ulnarly. And so, and actually if you do a PRC, the, the RSC ligament is a, it's kind of an oblique band palmarly and it, it almost feels like a guitar string. It's pretty stout. And so that RSC is kind of what's dragging the capitate. I've seen a case series, a limited case series where they've tried to repair them. They just don't do that well. So I, I had a case where a, a another surgeon did a PRC and the patient, you know, a couple of years later, the patient comes back and a significant wrist pain. A PRC is a proximal carpectomy, typically reserved for, for arthritis. It's a good option if someone wants to maintain motion. And, you know, I think initially it was described for older patients, but really there, there's been pretty reasonable data patients under 35 getting these and do fine. I, I like a PRC over four-corner fusion, but anyway, a PRC where the, maybe the palmar dissection is a little bit aggressive, the, the, the radioscapal capitate ligaments cut, and as you say, the, the carpus shifts ulnarly. In that setting, if that happens, the best option is probably a wrist fusion at that point. I think repairing that ligament is extraordinarily difficult, especially after the fact. But 
But the RSC, to, to bring it back to perilunates, is important uh, in, in part of the patho, uh, pathoanatomy of a perilunate as it maintains the capitate and, and the lunate, where the lunate should go, which is the lunate out of the distal radius. Yeah. And, and then earlier you mentioned, uh, you mentioned kind of a greater arc injury. You mentioned like a transcaphoid, perilunate, fracture dislocation. I know there's a couple different nomenclatures and there, and there are greater arc injuries, lesser arc injuries. Can you kind of just go through like what 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 are these like what is what does it mean by a greater arc injury or, le- or a lesser arc? Uh, so a lesser arc is a ligamentous and a greater arc is when there's uh, little fractures here and there and one of the ones you would see more commonly would be uh, for a greater arc would be a, a little chip off the the uh, radial styloid that would be more common another more common presentation would be at just a transscaphoid perilunate those are probably two of the ones that i would see the most and uh, I, I actually think that the transscaphoid perilunate dislocations do do better clinically, at least in my experience, as opposed to the lesser arc injuries. And I think that's because if you get a good reduction and, and you, you put a nice big screw and you get good compression in the scaphoid, you know, that's really all you have to do for those. And so I, you just, you know, it's a, it's a, t- it's a tougher reduction as compared to a typical scaphoid. But I, I think if you have a trans scaphoid and you, you get a nice reduction, those, those patients actually can do quite well. But if you have a, a greater arc injury and there's a number of fractures to include the radial styloid, or so, sometimes even the the lunate can be fractured in the coronal plane, or or these other associated fractures. T, the ulnar styloid often is fractured as well. Sometimes I end up treating those with a bridge plate uh, because I really think soft tissue rest is is really important. And it's hard to piece every little put every little piece back together. So sometimes a bridge plate can can treat those uh, nicely, but definitely very high energy injuries. Yeah, yeah, perfectly. A great, great, great uh, summary against those. Less arc injury is just ligamentous injuries, greater arc when you kind of have a fracture. And when you talk about transcaphoid perilunate fracture dislocation, it's when you have this fracture dislocation, but also have a fracture of the of the scaphoid. And you mentioned it earlier, you mentioned carpal tunnel syndrome, acute carpal tunnel syndrome occurring almost up to in about 25%, I believe you said, of cases where you have a perilunate um, dislocation. But what else do we want? Say, you know, we have a resident going in there, you know, they they were consulted that there was a distal radius fracture, but you actually peeked at the films and you saw it was a perilunate. And so you're telling them, this is what I want you to make sure you do on your history and physical exam. What what should they, what should we be looking for and what should they be doing? The first thing you should do before you pull or do, do anything or numb anyone up would be a good neuro exam. And, you know, it's hard to ask a patient, do you feel this? You know, that's unfortunately not super specific. And, and, you know, patients will, be, will give you all kinds of varied answers. And so you really want to try to do a very good neuro exam. The best thing you can do is just take a paperclip and bend it around a bit. And uh, you can ask the patient if they feel two or one. And, and that can just take a few seconds, really. And, and you know, every ER has a paperclip. But that's probably what I would do for a little bit more specific of a, an exam for static two-point discrimination. These need to be reduced. I sometimes have residents, sometimes don't. If I, if I do have residents, the residents usually take care of this for me. If I'm on my own, I usually ask the ER doctor to reduce this. Um, so, but but on exam, they'll have you know you should do a neuro exam first. They're going to have a pain and swelling, you know, and and you want to make sure you have scrutinized X-rays of the wrist and elbow, and and you know a, a good percentage of these are polytrauma, especially you know especially where we are. There's a border wall; people fall off the wall. So, a kind of a good a good general orthopedic exam is important. But I would focus on the neuro exam, and then these need to be reduced and. Typically, the means, especially for a junior resident, finger traps are about the best thing you can you can have on hand. Move the patient to the edge of the gurney. So if it's a, a, a right perilunate, you would move the patient all the way to the right side of the gurney so the elbows flex to 90 degrees. The index and middle are in finger traps. 
And then I, I don't know what you guys are using now. I used to hang lead vests off the patient's biceps, or you can sometimes get a stocking at, get some weights and, and use that. But you put a little bit of weight there. And then I, at, at that point, you can, you know, or, or shortly there before, you can numb the patient up. And usually you can get these reduced with just the hematoma block. Sometimes they require sedation. But, you know, from my perspective, when I'm on my own taking call without residents, I have the ER doctor try, and if he's unable to, and it's they're usually 50-50, the more acute the injury, the higher the likelihood, I think, that the ER doctor is able to reduce these. But if he's able to reduce them, I will see the patient at clinic typically, or sometimes just get the patient admitted and do it the next day or something like that. If the ER doctor cannot get them reduced, I take them to the OR. I don't myself go to the ER and then go to the OR. I just will try in the OR, and if I can't reduce it, I, you know, I just make the incision and and just take care of it. But uh, I, I always, I always try to do the, uh, either through the ER doctor, the resident, try to get that reduced in the. Uh, yeah. And, and as far as your reduction technique, you mentioned, you know, bringing to the side, finger traps, hanging weight on. And I think I've reduced maybe two of these and it's, and it's been kind of the same, like exaggerating deformity, putting some traction and then putting it in some type of, you know, mobilized sugar tongue splint or some type of, of mobilization. One thing I wanted to, to quickly touch base on was the x-rays and evaluating the x-rays. And if I wanted to take a quick second, if you could explain kind of how you go through evaluating these, because I know sometimes these can, these injuries can be easily missed. Like if there's any systematic way that you view wrist x-rays or any lines or anything that you pay attention to. Yeah. And then the other thing, one more thing about the reduction, usually, so exactly as you say, you can exaggerate the deformity, so that's extension. And if you put your thumbs on the lunate or thumb, I guess if you're by yourself, if you put your thumb on the lunate and, and try to shift that dorsally as you extend the wrist and apply traction, you usually can not pop pop the capitate back onto the lunate. But in terms of the x-rays, yeah, I mean, I, the, these are missed 25% of the time. In fact, I have one tomorrow that was missed for three weeks and sometimes the radiologist misses it. Sometimes the emergency medicine doctor thinks there's a fracture or uh, you know, a wrist sprain or something like that, but these are missed 25% of the time. It's it's uh, it's just a difficult thing. I, you know, I I don't know that it's necessarily one's fault or whatever. It's just that these are difficult injuries and and can be quite subtle. But I think if you scrutinize your X-rays, your your likelihood is an orthopedic surgeon missing would be considerably lower. I I think the easiest thing to do is Galula's arcs, and that's just kind of a kind of a rule of thumb. You can see the the relationship or the joint between the proximal row, so the scaphoid, the lunate, and the, and the distal radius. And then similarly, you could look at the arc between the mid-carpal joints. So that would be the, the capitate and scaphoid, the capitate and the, the lunate. And you should you should be able to kind of trace your, your finger across there and should look like a joint. So that's the easiest way to do it. I think another way to do it, staying on the AP, would be the carpal height ratio. So that's something I always do. If I think there's kind of looks funny and I don't, I don't really know what's going on there, I'll measure the height of the third metacarpal versus the height of the carpus. And the height of the carpus should be 50% of that of the third metacarpal. So if it's if it's not and the carpus is significantly shorter, that capitate sitting in the lunate fossa, and th- this is just on an AP, and so you you know the carp- carpal height is not what it should be, and so that that is a pretty easy thing to do, and and that can be done as a backup. You can put that in your note to kind of support your diagnosis if you're saying there's there's no uh, instability of the carpus, but also on the AP that they you know they save. You know, the, the lunate looks like a pie in the sky or a piece of cheese. Lula's arcs will be abnormal. The carpus will, will be shortened to the lunate. It, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't look right. It looks like a, like a kind of a triangle or a wedge of cheese. On the lateral, you can see the, 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 the lunate. Yeah, I think your mouse is on it there. The, the lunate is, is palmer typically to the remainder of the carpus. It, it can be 
flexed. And again, it's flexed because of the the short radial lunate. But I think that the best thing to get you out of trouble, the easiest thing is Galula's arcs. If you want something a little bit more objective, I, I would measure the carpal height ratio. And you can always put that in your note as something that's a little bit more objective. Yeah, I like that. The carpal height ratio. I, I have not measured that before, but now I'll, I'll definitely take a look at that and look that up after here. And definitely for those that are listening, you did a great job summarizing and, and talking about what to look for on the imaging, you know, goals, arcs, and, you know, making sure everything looks right. You mentioned, we kind of went over the acute management, but say, for example, you, you know, you take them up to the OR and that you, you try to reduce it, you can't get them. What does the surgical management look like for this? I guess in two parts, I guess one is surgical wise, what are your, what are your techniques or what are you doing? And then the other part to it is what is the chronicity? So say, for example, you know, can you wait a week or two weeks before you do the same thing or does your, does your management change? You know, so can you kind of take us through some of these? Yeah. So if I'm by myself, the ER doctor cannot get this reduced. The patient needs to go to the OR. You know, these always seem to come in the middle of the night. So if this came in at midnight, you had a first start the next day, you, you probably could put it on as first case. Uh, if you didn't and you were at a, at a different hospital, uh, you would probably need to get it done that night. I, I wouldn't let this go 24 hours with with you know being dislocated, but but that's kind of how I would how we would treat that. If I take the patient to the operating room for a reduction, that patient's going to get surgery. I'm not going to take the patient to the to the OR for a reduction and then bring them back to the OR at a later date surgery. I, I'm going to be there. The surgery does not take long at all you know, maybe 30 minutes or so. So I'm going to just do this at the, at the time that I reduce it. And so I do try to reduce it. I think it makes the surgery a little bit easier to have a reduction, but I, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm 50-50, I don't know, but I'm, I'm going to make an incision if I take a patient to the operating room for this. So I make a dorsal incision, kind of as you as you have shown here, which is vertical. I feel Lister's tubercle. I go just ulnar to Lister's tubercle and I extend it a few centimeters or so, so that I could get to the capitate. I then, I always surgically transpose the accessory pulses longest. I end up putting it back to try to restore the anatomy because, you know, in residency, we never put the EPL back, back under Lister's tubercle. And I was told that doesn't matter, but you know, patients complain of their thumb being weak. So I actually do think it matters. So I do put EPL back always. I, I didn't until I had so many complaints. I thought, oh boy, I better put the EPL back going forward. And I have not had another complaint about thumb weakness. And then, so uh, I elevate the second radially and I elevate the fourth Ulnarly, at this point, you're staring at the posterior osseous nerve. You can take it. I, you know, there's some literature that suggests it matters. I, I don't know. I, I don't know that it does, but, but it's right there. So you could, you could take it if you wanted it. And then I make a dorsal a capsulectomy, capsulotomy with a, a, a distal flap. And so w- one of the things about the flap is, uh, if you haven't done these, you could just, you could just go make a T. That's kind of what you would do for a scaphoid. But I think making a dorsal based, sorry, distally based flap, I think it allows you to advance the capsule a little bit. And that tightens these guys up. And so I, I kind of like to do that. But uh, one, one of the tips about making this uh, this capsular flap is you want to make sure that you're carrying it radially and ulnarly enough to, to to see what you need to see, especially when you make an incision and it's into the capsule and it's, a dis, it's everything's dislocated. It's going to look kind of confusing in there. Bones are going to be here, they're everywhere. You're going to think you're seeing the lunate and it's really the capitate. So I, I would I would make sure you make that capsular flap wide enough. And I think anyone who's listening to this, who does hand surgery would be able to attest, especially when you're doing like a 3LT reconstruction, which is a more of a, a chronic surgery for a scapulonate. 
ligament injury, making these wider flaps, I, I think is critical. So I, I just do it the same way every time. Uh, so a paralunate distally based flap with with pretty, that's it's pretty aggressive radially and ulnarly. And I fold that up. And uh, at this point, you should be able to get the reduction. You usually are going to have to use a lavage or something that'll help you be able to see, but it really looks like a bottle went off in there. But with a little bit of traction, you can usually milk the lunate back, back under the capitate. Uh, but fluoroscopy is important. If you don't know where you are, that's that's really not unheard of because you know everything looks discombobulated. You can take a, a four or five K wire and, and, and put it in a bone and take an x-ray and, and, and see what you have. But at this point, the reduction is not is not very difficult. If there's interposed soft tissue, you could certainly remove that at this time and, and that, that makes it easier. And then in terms of next steps for fixation, you, you get everything lined up. I usually use 3K wires. The two most important ones in, in my in my view are the the SL pin, the the followed by the SC pin. Although I, my sequence is usually scaphalunate, lunate, and then lunotrichbutriol, and then scaphalunate, sorry, scaphocapitate. And the scaphocapitate pin may seem redundant, but it really, I, I think it keeps the, the scaphoids from flexing. So it takes tension off of the SL repair. So I, I like putting the SC pin in, and it's really not hard to do. You, you do have to aim more dorsally than you think, but I think the scapocapitate pen is important. In terms of the reduction, I think there's a couple ways to do it. If you're by yourself, I, I have found that just your thumb, just putting your thumb on the on the capitolunate joint gives gives me the best restoration of native anatomy. So I usually start the the scapolunate scapho pen under fluoroscopy to make sure I have the trajectory. I get it about 90% of the way across the scaphoid, and then I put my thumb on the lunate. And uh, and that seems to that seems to re- re- restore Galula's arcs the best. But a couple of tips could include using point-to-point clamps. So I'd ask for the regular bone forceps, but also the bigger ones too. And then you can also use joysticks. So for the lunate, you're trying to get the lunate back into flexion. It's extended towards the radius. Put put a four or five K wire in the lunate and then move that as you move that distally, that'll bring the lunate into flexion. Some people pin the lunate through the distal radius. So as you're driving the scaphoid lunate pin across, you're pushing the scaphoid into the lunate. The lunate's fixed to the radius. That's another way of closing down that scaphalunate gap. And then you can also put a joystick in the scaphoid and the lunate and then wrap them around each other, or hold them with a with a hemostat, something like that. And that can reduce your SL gap. SL, the SL gap is really what you got to be focused on. I, I would worry less about the LT. I think putting an LT pin is mostly supportive of the lunate. I don't think you're necessarily treating the LT joint itself, but it's keeping the lunate in a, in a reasonable position. So that those those would be my tips for getting your reduction. Once once it's reduced, uh, I usually clip pins under the skin. You can leave them outside the skin, but I actually had an infection and I had a patient get septic arthritis once. He was immobilized for a long period of time. So I do I like to keep them under the skin. I, I think I can keep them in a little bit longer that way. And then I use a micro suture anchor. So there's different companies, but I, I use metallic anchors for this because I think the all suture anchors. You know, part just the mechanism of an all suture anchor, you got to drill a little bit deeper. And you don't, you know, I, I don't know that you always have that ability in hand surgery. So I, I generally prefer a metallic anchor. So I use a micro suture anchor, typically in the lunate, sometimes the scaphoid, and I just repair the SL. I keep the sutures long because at the end of the case, I advance that capsule back down dorsally and I try to secure the capsule to the suture anchor as well. And then you can either use transosseous tunnels or more, more often than not, just sewing that dorsal capsule to the periosteum of the distal radius is, is sufficient, but I don't typically use headless compression screws. I know that was kind of, it was kind of in vogue when I was in, in fellowship and I really have not seen them much. And so maybe that's fallen out of favor, but that would be like a rassle screw 
Um, I, I think they're kind of a pain in the butt to get out. And I think they're really non-physiologic. So I would rather do the repair, pin it, and, you know, just wash them in clinic as that may diastase a little bit. Once the pins are pulled, the SL gap, that happens quite a bit. I'd rather see that than see a non-physiologic, you know, headless compression screw, you know, compress the, the heck out of the SL joint. I just, it's also, it's hard. These things are hard to get out. Patients don't like them. And then I, I hate doing surgeries where there's not a good plan B. And the plan B is you got to go on and try to get that thing out. It's, just, it's, a, it's a nightmare. So I don't like doing the the screws. I guess I do it the old fashioned way. Yeah. With the pins. No, that was, that was a great, you know, that was a great explanation of, of the procedure. You know, you, you go dorsally, you make your incision, you raise your flap, you try to locate whatever you can. If you need some help, you know, you can put a put a pin in a, in a bone and get an x-ray and see where that is. But after that, you know, you reduce it, you can hold it with your thumb. You said you pin your, your SL joint or your scapholunate joint. Uh, you could put some pins in the lunotriquitial joint, but I think you said that kind of helps stabilize more the lunate. And then you also put something across the cavitate as well. And then you like to use the metallic anchors to do your ligament repair. And so this is, so what, I, I guess what, what would you do if, if this is three months out? Does that change anything at all? Like if this, if this is a chronic missed injury and it's being dislocated for three months and like a young construction worker because or somebody like that does that change any of your your technique or what you may do yeah i think the so the test question you might be driving at is should you should you just do a prc i think getting reduced at three months is going to be difficult but i'll tell you just one of the principles in my practice this and this goes for amputations as well i always try to do the salvage i, I never try to start with a salvage procedure because it doesn't it doesn't set you up for a good plan b and I never want to be accused by a patient of not being considerate and, oh, you know, Dr. Dunn really rushed this or whatever. So I, I always try to, you know, if there's a patient, I, I try to say, I try to salvage the finger or whatever. I, I try not to go straight to an amputation. Same thing for a, a for the lunate and the PRC in a, in a paralunate, even if it's been out weeks or even months potentially. And I have had these cases. I can, I, I, at least thus far, have always been able to reduce them and and fix this. Now, I have had a patient go on to lunate avascular necrosis, but she, you know, she was stiff, but not incredibly painful. And so I don't know that she would have been much better than a PRC anyway. And I can always go back to PRC as a plan B if she wants it. So I think the test question, a young laborer, someone who says, well, I'm, you know, I'm moving to a really rural part of the country and uh, I'm, I'm going to work on an oil rig and I, I can't have this pin and I don't want pins and just, just do one surgery for me. Then yes, the answer is a PRC. I live in a part of the country that has a lot of oil rigs and I'll tell you, most people still want me to try it. And that is my preference as well. I, I never want a patient to regret or, or think that I didn't try to save it. So although it's Avian of the lunate's a real thing. It's a very sensitive bone. I, I always, I always give it the uh, give it a shot. The other thing I wanted to mention: if you have a, a complex greater arc injury, a tool that can be very helpful to you it would be a bridge plate. And so I would not do, do these on a lesser arc injury, but a very accommodated greater arc injury that you just you you want the patient to kind of sock in and and uh, and you want soft tissue rest for a prolonged period of time. I, th I think a, I think a bridge plate is a great option and. There's a, a bunch of companies that make them. Synthes has a, has, I think it's a 2427, but the problem with that plate, as I recall, there's no glide hole. And so kind of the nice thing to do is to fix it, the metacarpal, and then swing it over to the shaft on the radius. as usually between the first and second dorsal compartments. If you do have a glide hole, you can just put the screw concentrically and then give it a little traction. Not too much because you can distract the carpus quite easily, but a little bit, and then tighten that 
the the proximal screw and, and that gives you a, a hair of distraction and supports the carpus quite nicely. And I usually just do two screws distally, two screws proximally. But again, I think the synthes plate may not have a glide wall. I usually end up using TriMed because I use them for wrist fractures primarily, but they have a, a bridge plate with a, with a glide wall. And I know some of the other companies do as well. And then the other thing I do is uh, I do a carpal tunnel release on, on basically everyone. You know, I, the, the worst thing to do to be, you, you do a good job in the surgery and you're on your way home and the PACU nurse says, oh, the patient can't feel his fingers or something. And whether that happened from the surgery or from the injury, which of course is the, the most likely thing, you, you don't want to have to drive back in and get the guy to, back for a carpal tunnel. So I, I just release everyone's carpal tunnel. It adds five minutes to the surgery. Patients probably need it. And uh, I think it's... I just think it's it's probably the safest route just to routinely re- release. And for the dorsal bridge plate, do you go to the second or the third metacarpal? I know that's always a, a discussion. Yeah, yeah, that's you're right. It is a big point of discussion. So I always go to the third no matter what. People go to the second and say, well, it, it gives you, restores a little bit more radial height because you're only deviating the wrist. And the other argument is that it saves the third metacarpal should you ever need a fusion. So I've never done a bridge plate like for a distal radius fracture or whatever and later converted it to a fusion and say, oh shoot, I should have done the second because now I really need that bone for the fusion. So I literally have never had that happen. I think it's theoretical. And I think putting it in the third aligns, you know, the third metacarpal should align to the capitate, to the lunate, to the radius. And so that's the intermediate column of the wrist. And so I think putting the bridge plate onto the third metacarpal makes the most sense physiologically. And I, I really don't think there's any downsides. And I think the, I, I just, I, I don't think there's any benefit putting into the second. I just, I, I just have never needed that in my practice. And I, I, I think the third is restores the native anatomy the best. Okay, perfect. And, and Dr. Down, one other thing I wanted to quickly touch base on before we wrap up here is what is your typical post-op protocol? You know, say, you know, we had one of these, we fixed it acutely, we put a couple of wires in. You repaired the, the the ligaments. What do you do post-op? Well, so two weeks in a in a splint, and it's just a short arm splint, and then the patients come back. Pins are under the skin. They're in a cast for four weeks, so that's a total of six weeks of mobilization. I cut them out of the cast. I usually only take x-rays at the six-week point. That, that's the same for distal radiuses. I don't, I don't get x-rays at every visit. So the, the second post-op visit, that's six weeks. I cut them out of the cast, take x-rays. And then I give them a removable brace and I schedule them around eight weeks for pin removal. So at even post-op day one, or when I see them in the clinic at the at, at week two, I tell them that they, I really want them to work on finger flexion, finger motion and supination. Obviously they can't do wrist flexion or extension. They're in a splint and then a cast, but I don't want them to wait six weeks to start finger motion. So they don't need formal therapy, but I do want them working as much as they can on finger motion, wrist supination, forearm supination. At the six-week point, I, you know, they they technically can move the radiocarpal joint. They're oftentimes too stiff, but I what I don't want to do is have them show up to the the surgery center week eight with their cast on or anything like that. So I usually do put them in a removable brace at that point. It's a bit easier for them to get around and to to do hygiene and stuff, and then those pins come out. Uh, usually at the surgery center at about eight weeks. And at that point, we're, we're, uh, we're starting therapy. It's really for range of motion. I, I, like, uh, I like doing a push-up progression because I think it really helps with wrist extension. And most patients don't get back to doing push-ups. So a- active duty patients, you know, two years after this injury in our, in our study, only 50% remained on active duty. And a lot of those guys were not doing their push-ups with their wrist extended. They were doing them with their fists. So I think Patients always have problems with with wrist extension, grip strength. You know, it's it's a debilitating injury. 
but I think doing a push-up progression mostly for stretching, probably for the first month on the wall is the best way to get back wrist extension. Then you can dial up a little bit of pressure as you Dr. Dunn, I've, I've learned a lot from just this podcast is talking to you about perilunate injuries. Anything else about perilunate injuries that you want the listeners or anybody else to know about before we wrap up here? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. But uh, listeners can uh, reach me at my website, which is johndunmd.com. And I'm on Twitter at johndunmd. Perfect. That's exactly what I was going <laughs> to ask you next. You beat me to it. Well, Dr. Don, again, it's been great having you on as a podcast guest. Those that are listening, thank you all for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please go and leave a rating and leave a review. Let us know how much you enjoyed it. And we will see everybody next time. Okay. Thanks, man. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We hope that you enjoyed it. We hope that you learned something. We hope that you all are subscribed to the YouTube channel so you get these YouTube clips and you get the YouTube videos of what we do. And without further ado, We will see you all next time. Do you want to make $20 for five minutes of your time? David Mandel is an upcoming three-time guest on this podcast, and his firm has designed a survey to learn what young doctors care about when it comes to finances. The first 30 of you who complete the survey get a $20 Amazon gift card. 20 bucks for five minutes, not bad. To get a link to the survey, just text GET20 to 844-418-1212. That's G-E-T. Two zero to eight four 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 one eight one two one two. I will also put a link in the show notes.